Well, good morning, y'all. It's good to have Eric Goodman back. I have to say, I missed you, bro. Um, so, have you kind of ever wondered, like, how the whole Christianity thing got started? Um, you know, going from just like this handful of believers of people who followed Jesus down there in Jerusalem to you know, now having more than two and a half billion followers around the world, worldwide. You know, the, the, the Christian faith really spread dramatically over the last couple thousand years across the entire world. And I think the question is, you know, how did that happen? And that's the, what, the question that we're seeking to answer here in this series of how the church went viral. And we're doing that by looking at the story of the beginning of the church as told in the book of Acts. And it really starts with Jesus uh, just after his resurrection from the dead. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. He's accomplished his mission of what he wanted to do, and now he's going to hand the baton off to his followers to pick up where he's leaving off. And so he gathers around himself his group of disciples And he suddenly reveals what would become the mission of their lives. Because he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even into the ends of the earth. Now, you you have to remember that Christianity was founded in this Jewish culture, and so to talk about Christianity exceeding the boundaries of the Jewish culture um, culture was a big deal. And, um, you know, Jesus is basically telling them, look, this Christianity thing is bigger than anything y'all could have ever imagined. And so today's story that we're going to look at really would have blown the minds of the disciples that were gathered around Jesus in this moment, but it really sets the stage for how the church really begins to go global because there was this guy who was not a good guy who nobody could have ever believed that he would ever get on board with Jesus. And when he did, it became apparent that he would be the one who would take this Christianity thing to the next level and even unto the ends of the earth. So I want to pick up where I left off a a couple weeks ago. Um, And... If you remember, I was talking about the stoning of Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr of the church who was killed, and kind of the butterfly effect um, of that incident and how that incident really uh, was a catalyst for making a lot of change in in the Christian faith. And that particular event um, also sent Saul on a trajectory um, that would have the greatest butterfly effect of all because, you know, from that one event came a series of events that would really change the world uh, forever. And so I'll just remind you, we read this a couple weeks ago, but it said, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So this is where we talked about everybody, all the Christians scattered. And from that point forward, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Now, 
Believe me when I tell you that every Christian in Palestine knew the name of Saul, and not because he was a good guy or revered or well-liked. It was because he was feared. Nobody wanted to be his next victim, to be killed or to be put in prison for their faith. Saul was not a good guy at this point, and he was doing some pretty evil things because he was passionate about what he believed. He, he believed that the Christian faith was a threat to, the, to Judaism, and so he was protecting that faith, and so he held on to his, his beliefs, and he held on to his traditions um, to the point that he couldn't see the truth. So he was a passionate guy, but he was passionately wrong. Um, it goes on in Acts chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I mean, you can hear this guy just rage out against the church, right? But while he was traveling on the road to Damascus, something happened. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, <laughs> If you're Saul in this moment, you got to be freaking out right now, right? And if this is who he thinks it is on the other end of that light, you got to know you're toast. And it certainly seems like his greatest nightmare is coming true. And I'm sure he's wondering, could I have possibly been wrong all this time? Is this Jesus thing for real? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Is this really Jesus? And so Saul replies back to the hidden voice, hidden in the light. And he says, who are you, Lord? Oh, he knows who it is, telling you. And this is literally like a come to Jesus moment for him that Saul hoped that he would never, ever have to face, but deep down, he knows in his heart who this really is, and then his worst fears are confirmed when the voice answers back and says, I am Jesus. You know, he's just like, his heart's sunk, he just takes a big gulp because he knows he's busted, right? And Jesus says, not just that I'm Jesus, but I'm the Jesus you've been persecuting, don't mess with me. Now, get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless as they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Do you think God's got his attention now? So there sits Saul blind, hungry, and I am positive he was scared. I mean, I would be, wouldn't you? If you were in that situation, wondering what God would do to punish you for the wicked things that you did against the people that followed his son. But meanwhile, it says that in Damascus, there was this other guy, this disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he, Saul, saw, has a, seen a man, you, Ananias, come to the place, lay your hands on him and restore his sight. And now Ananias goes into this thing. He's like, uh, but Lord, I don't think this is a good idea. 
I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to chase down Christians and arrest them and bring them back. I love this because Ananias is trying to talk a little sense into the God of the universe. Hey God, this is a really bad idea. This is a really bad guy. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man, this is an an important line here. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So right here, God makes it super clear what the plan is for this whole thing when he says that Saul is his personal choice to become the one who would take the message of Jesus to the rest of the world, to the rest of the non-Jewish world. Now, when you look at Saul's conversion through the lens of how the Christian faith went viral, this is a really critical event. One scholar put it this way, he says, Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the conversion of Saul was the most important event in human history. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would not only be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament, but the Christian faith would have not gone global and instead would still be limited to the region of Palestine. I mean, if you think about it, it does make sense, doesn't it? If you're God and you want to take the Christian faith global, who do you get to lead that charge? The guy who's the most adamantly opposed to it, right? I mean, if you want the one person who would have the most impact, no question, it's Saul. If you could somehow turn his passion from evil to really doing good, there's nothing that could stop this guy, which is exactly what happened. And when you then also consider that Saul was born in Tarshish, which is now part of modern-day Turkey, but the point is that it's outside of the boundaries of Israel. While he grew up Jewish, that was their ethnicity, um, they were a multicultural family, meaning that they were Roman citizens and they had access to all of the rights and privileges under the Roman Empire. And he was fluent in the Greek language and studied Greek and Roman culture. So this guy was super well-rounded, and so when it comes to go out into the world, he knows the world. So do you think that this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus is somehow a coincidence? Did Jesus just somehow randomly pick Saul because he was conveniently located on the road to Damascus when he needed him to be? I don't think so. I think God knew exactly what he was doing here. And I think that this guy is as strategic as it gets making him like the first round draft pick to quarterback the expansion of the church moving forward. Well, it goes on in Acts 9, and it says, And then Ananias went to the house that Saul was and entered it. He placed his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. 
And immediately he got up and was baptized. So literally in this one moment, the narrative flips. And Saul goes from being the number one enemy of the church to becoming the number one convert of the church. You know, I can't help but, you know, read the story of Saul and his conversion without thinking about our own lives in that context and how we all are very capable of going through life completely oblivious to anything spiritual, to anything beyond this world. We get so caught up in the daily grind, we're just like super narrowly focused in on the busyness of life, and we forget to look up and understand that there is a whole nother world that's out there. And I think, I really believe that I'm safe in saying this, that in every single one of our lives, there comes a moment where there, we get like this wake-up call. And I don't care whether it's like, maybe it's the death of somebody that you love deeply or Maybe you've had a near-death experience or struggle with health or whatever it is. There comes this moment where we all have this aha moment where suddenly we become very aware of the spiritual world. We become very aware of the spiritual side of who we are. And all of a sudden in that moment, we know one thing. We need God. We need him. What happens after that, I think, determines the very outcome of our lives because a whole lot of us, we just go back to the way it was. We forget about what was revealed to us and we go back to the daily grind because that's our default, that's what we know, that's what's comfortable. But for those of us who choose to stay on the narrow dirt path that leads us through Damascus, it's life-changing. And we see this life change occur in Saul, even down to his name. I I love how the Bible addresses when he goes from Saul to Paul. In Acts chapter 13, verse 9, here's like what it says about that. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. Oh, that clears it up, right? (laughs) It's like Luke just slips in this little phrase that, oh, by the way, Saul's changing his name to Paul now, and um, you know, from this point forward, Saul and the rest of the Bible is now referred to as Paul. Well, what is the significance of that name change? You know, I think there's a couple possibilities here. One is, potentially, as we would call it in, in my business, reputation management, um, you know, when, when we buy an old apartment community that's kind of dilapidated and it's got a bad rap on social media and stuff, and we're going to take the time to reposition the property and, and put capital in it and, and make it better, then we completely change the name of that property so that the way that it is going forward is not associated with what it was in the past. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about with Saul to Paul, right? Like, he, he had a bad rap. He had a bad reputation. Everybody knew him. And so to change his name to Paul accomplishes that same thing where it's almost symbolic of him being born again, right? But I think the, the other possibility is also very possible, which is the fact that Saul is a very Jewish name. 
his parents were members of the tribe of Benjamin, and they named their son after Israel's first king, Saul, who we read about in the Old Testament. And so now, if you're going to be the guy that is going to carry the message of Jesus Christ out into the world, which is a very Greek culture, and you're carrying a very Jewish name, that could actually be an obstacle, a barrier, between you building relationships with other people. And so Paul is a very Greek name. And so I think that that also helps him to become more relatable right off the bat when he's being introduced in uh, other parts of the world. So those are just a couple possibilities, but regardless, the story of the conversion of Paul, I think, I think it gives us hope, or at least it does for me, um, that if Jesus can take this really bad guy who was a ruthless opponent of the Christian faith who lived his life to really destroy it, and has now become somebody who is so passionate about his love for Jesus, then there's certainly hope for all of us. Because it means that no one is beyond God's reach. When you think about your own life and where you're at and what you're holding on to, what kind of disruption will it take in our life to realize the truth about who we really are, which helps us to understand who he really is. I mean, many of us can go through our entire life passionately believing things that aren't true about God. We can hold on to traditions, and there's nothing wrong with traditions in the church or whatever, that's awesome, but when the traditions become your religion and it becomes a barrier to your faith, then that's off, and that's what was happening with Saul. And so we can be passionately, you know, pursuing something in in terms of what we're believing, but we can still be passionately wrong. And a lot of us truly are just making stuff up about God that comes, pops up in our head or our gut or something we've seen on TV that just isn't true. And so can we somehow transition our passion from something that has no meaning to something that's authentic and real. I mean, the difference between religion and faith is that we stop doing things because that's just the way that I was raised, or that I'm too stubborn to change, or I think that I'm smarter than everybody else, to now live with a faith that is real and it drives everything about my life, and I live authentically in my faith. For Paul, it it literally took an act of God for him to change. So is it possible that before God strikes us with blindness, that we can somehow figure it out ahead of time? Like we really need to figure out how to let go of the stuff in our lives that's holding us back from having an authentic relationship with God. The stuff that we hold on to so tightly that it has no meaning. It's interesting because it seems to me that when God wants to do something incredible in the world, it seems like he always does it with some really messed up people. I mean, you look at guys like David or this Saul or you or me or whoever. Like, God is in the business of taking ordinary people and doing some really extraordinary things. And I think that when you look at the life of Paul, 
you can't help but kind of look at your own life and ask yourself the question, what am I doing with my life? Like, what's my purpose? Where am I off? Where am I holding on to beliefs or traditions that's holding me back from having an authentic faith? And what will it take for me to wake up and see the truth that I need Jesus? I think when you truly understand the depth of your sin as Paul did, you can't help but be overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has done for you. And it feels like you can never, ever do enough to say thank you. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he's now a much older man and he reflects back on his life. Listen to this. He says, this is 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I am the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Today, I am who I am because of God's grace. And I have made sure that the grace he offered me has not been wasted. I have made sure that the grace that he's offered me has not been wasted on me. And so, therefore, I have worked harder and longer than all the rest. It is God's grace within me that has made the difference. I got to tell you, this right here is the secret to having a sustainable faith that will last you until the finish line of your life. Because if we're trying to have a faith that's based on the do's and don'ts of Christianity, if we're trying to hold on to traditions for the sake of traditions or doing stuff just because that's the way that I was raised, I will tell you this, from personal experience, when crisis hits and the rubber hits the road, it is not enough to keep you in your faith. And so Paul <laughs> understands how messed up he was. He understands how lost he was, and because of that gratitude, he says, now I'm living differently. And that's really the key for our faith. It's our gratitude that drives us in our relationship with God. It's our gratitude for that grace that causes us to want to work harder. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, but because of that grace, we have a desire to work harder. Because I'm grateful for that grace, it causes me to want to give more. Because I'm grateful for that grace, it causes me to want to figure out how I can make a difference in the world, how I can contribute back. Because of my gratitude for that grace, it causes me to want to be closer to God. To become better people. Because I'll tell you this, I don't want the grace that God has given me to be wasted on me. I want to make darn sure I do whatever it takes in my life to say thank you for what he's done. I think that all of us are very capable of doing extraordinary things. I think that all of us are very capable 
of getting closer to God than we really are right now. I think that all of us are very capable of walking down and staying on the narrow dirt path that leads to Jesus and living counterculturally and doing things differently because that's what he asks of us. So what will it take? The wake-up call of our life when all of a sudden I get it. I know now who I am in Jesus. And I have great clarity about what it is and who it is that I'm living for. All of a sudden I can see this clear path that is in front of me and you can begin to see your real life, the person that God created you to become, to emerge from the dust and the fog of the craziness of the daily grind and begin to understand who we are in God and what is my life about. And I have clarity about that. And in that moment, in that moment, you know that no one, no one is beyond the reach of God. Not even you.